Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Thank you very much. Thank you, Scott. I want to thank all of you. I'd like to start off with a moment of silence for the man who, as near as I can see, was, from what I understand, was, and my contacts with him was instrumental in really starting, uh, helping Roy start the uh, last Los Angeles group that really lived. There had been some groups in L.A. and before, and they had died out. And when we came in here in December 10th of 1983 for the Simi Valley Conference, uh, there was a struggling group just starting up then, and a man named John Broy, we use his last name now, because he died September 25th, and he was his sobriety date was December 10th, 1983. And I'd like to have a moment of silence for John Broy. Thank you. John was, uh, I, I told John he had uh, some years of work in Emotional Health Anonymous, so he knew the steps. And I, I, I told him it was very important for him to help start this group uh, here and help it stay alive and, and not die. And John was a very uh, shy and retiring person, and he said, Jess, he said, you don't know what you're asking of me. And I said, yes, John, I do know what you're, I'm asking of you, but there is no one else to do it. And then Ted came in, and, uh, uh, and the, he and Ted were very instrumental in, in providing the steadiness that was needed in those uh, terrible early days. There's no way I can communicate to you what the hell it means to try to get sexual sobriety when no one understands it. The only person who understood it was Roy. And it was... Uh, it was just luckier than hell that each of us got the sobriety that we got. And I'll tell you, talk about it, trying to start a, a little bonfire in a blizzard. That was it. Right. And, of course, now, I just talked to his widow this morning. I called to check in with John and found he'd died. And uh, talked to his widow this morning and told him that there were 300 people here meeting and that his work in Los Angeles was the reason that this conference is, the beginning of the reason that his conference is here. Uh, well, my friends, I have uh, uh, a charge to lay upon you. My friend Jonathan from North Hollywood has imbued me with his fire.
so hang on to your chairs because we are going to go. Now, instead, I can do this two ways. I can do it the sneaky way. I can say I have something to share with you with my own personal experience. Well, that's a lie. Because i got something to tell you, cats. And I'm talking to me, but I'm talking to you. How many of you here believe in carrying the message? Okay, every one of us are liars. Every one of us are damn cheap, rotten liars. You know why? Because we're selling a $3 book for $10. We're making the newcomers pay the cost of this damn organization. Why haven't we got ten folders on SA on the various aspects of lust and the other things? Tell me why. Why? Huh? Tell me why. No money. We haven't got a damn money. We have money to do nothing. Okay, how the hell do you think this door was kept open from 1976 until a few of us phony jerks started to collect, you know, donating our few dollars. Who the hell kept the door open? Who's money? How much money did Roy put into this thing? How much? Ten? No. How much? Forty? Not? No. Probably more. Uh, admitted, he admits some to contributing somewhere in the vicinity of twenty-five to forty thousand dollars, but to me, it's a hell of a lot closer to a hundred thousand dollars. Okay, the way Iris and Roy are living now is they're living that way because they haven't got that fifty to a hundred thousand dollars that they gave to us. Okay, if it was a hundred thousand, and I think that could be very easily the case, that is annuitizes at about twelve percent. So we're taking about twelve thousand dollars a year out of Roy and Iris's pocket. Okay, you like the feeling of that? No way. Now, this is all Barry's fault because he told me about it last night. <laughs> he got the ball started to roll and I started to think about this thing and my God, I realized what it is. And you know, the thing that sits the heaviest on Roy's heart is not that money that he gave to us. You know what sits heaviest on his heart? It's the fact that we don't support ourselves by our donations. We're lying when we say our organization is self-supporting through its own contributions, we can't run this damn thing three months of the year on our contributions. We run it on the profits from our literature, which is largely sold to people who come one time and never come back. Now, you might say that's justice, that we make those suckers out there who ain't willing to come in pay for us. But to me, that's a phony kind of justice. We are a bunch of irresponsible flakes. Okay, what my addiction was, and it was a little higher test than some of yours, but it was not higher test than many others. And every one of you had an addiction that cost you a hell of a lot of money. It cost you money in the money you shelled out, but it cost you somewhere from five to ten times that in the money you didn't make and the money you wasted because of your damn addiction. And then you're putting a buck in that plate when it went by. You know what you put in that necessary, in the, that offering that was necessary yesterday to help bail out central office from their emergencies? 
it averages out to about four bucks a person unless you take out two or three contributions of a hundred to two hundred dollars a piece, and then it averages out to guess what? One dollar a piece. What a bunch of flakes and flannel mouths we are. So I'm an advertising man and I know something about how the hell to motivate people. <laughs> I'm going to motivate you right now. Every time that collection plate goes by in the first meeting you're at each week, if you go to ten meetings a week, fine. First meeting you're at that week, when that collection plate goes by, you put a $5 bill in there in memory of Roy and what he gave you. We're standing here saying, oh, Roy, you saved our lives. That's a typical sexaholic bunch of bullshit. We are so good with our mouth at seducing people to our way of acting. And we'll say all this crap. We're quick and facile. But every time I see a $5 bill, and every $5 bill I see in those collection plates that go by me from now on, I know that there's a real man behind that particular $5 bill instead of a flake, a flaky flannel mouth jerk whose word isn't worth nothing which is the typical example of whatever the word of a sexaholic is. It ain't worth nothing. It's worse than nothing. It's a lie, and it goes in the opposite direction. Okay? And when the emergency, when we come to these meetings here, I don't want to see nothing but $20 bills in there. And I don't want to hear anything from anybody saying, but I haven't got the 20 bucks. There ain't a one of us. When we went to the porno shop that didn't have our 20s in a row. We didn't forget them there. And by God, if we didn't forget them there, we better not forget them here. Ever again. I'm so sick to my guts of a guy walking into SA and saying, oh, gee, I forgot my money. Where in the hell does he think he is? So when this big collection plate goes by, like I say, it's 20s. You know what that'll do? It'll do two, three things. Like Bill uh, in, in, in AA got royalties from the big book, and, and Roy wrote our book, and he deserves royalties, but where in the hell's the money to pay the royalties? Where in the hell's the money to pay Roy back? And, and like I say, when Roy finds out about what the, I said here, he'd be so damn embarrassed and so damn mad at me, he'd want to kill me. But that's fine, that's his problem. <laughs> I'm a hell of a lot tougher than Roy is on my worst day. And it didn't start that way. I used to be scared shitless of him. But I'm not anymore. In fact, we're halfway friendly now. <laughs> so that if, if, and, 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 and the put, and I was talking to some people about that this morning. They said, well, my God, the money will pile up in our treasuries and our, our local treasurers hate the money piling up. What the hell is the money piling up in the local treasury for? A, he's got a rule that you can't have any more than a month's expenses in your damn treasury. So anytime there's more than $50 and certainly $100, get the damn money out of there and get it to central office and send part of it to intergroup. And, and central office has got a, a bank account that is very safe. Uh, we had a guy come to Bozeman in AA and, 
and got himself elected as treasurer of three organizations who were careless, and then got a, a old Vince, my old sponsor, to sign a note for twelve hundred bucks, a promissory note, and walked off with a whole vest. You know, Aaron Boy Danny, and he's down the road. <laughs> Poor devil carrying that kind of a load you steal from your friends in that kind of situation. But that's his problem. But we we partly created that by having that being careless about our damn money. So I'm constantly stripping money out of our little uh, buck a time deal and shipping it off to some place for something. But get it out of there. And then for intergroup treasuries, once they get to two hundred, three hundred dollars, get it out of there. And get it to central office because central office is desperately not in need of money. I mean, that, like they said, well, don't worry, this is a temporary need. That's got nothing to do with this thing. It's about you and me. I don't care if central office is, is moaning about what the hell can we do with this $200,000 we got here. Beautiful, no problem. They want to give it away or something, we can give it away then in somebody's name. But to me, uh, I would love to see the, like I watched by that Central Coordinating Committee meeting there yesterday morning in the coffee shop, and I damn near cried, because here we have been handed the administration of this fellowship. It's been put in our hands. It says, okay, you are now men and women who are capable of being responsible for something. And it was just an awesome sight to see our elected representatives running our, our stuff. Yeah, and we got our hand, we got their hands tied behind their back because they ain't got no damn money. Now they're not whining to me. They're manfully and womanfully doing the best job they possibly can of handling this thing and under the straightened finances that we were handling. They took our, our, our subscription money to the SA magazine and used it to pay the moving expenses. So now they can't put out the magazine. Okay, that's not their fault. That's our fault. Any of any spouse of a sexaholic, man or woman, who has just seen the husband or wife go out and blow the family money on their particular addiction and sat home with ten bills and, and one little piece of money knows what the hell the central office is feeling, and we're making them feel like that. Now, that is not recovery. That is not you and me carrying this message. So somebody said, well, we'll take it back to the group conscience. I said, to hell we will. I'm the group conscience. <laughs> you ain't going to ask the group what to do. You're going to go home and tell them what the hell to do. And we've got people here who have got connections into every group in America. And you are connected to other groups in America who aren't represented here. So the people that are here are just exactly right. You guys are going to carry this message to Garcia. And if you don't, you answer to me, buddy. <laughs> and if you think you've got a reason why I'm wrong, you try me. You just try me after this thing is over. I'll take anybody on any reason you got. Just try me. So, enough of that. But I was asked to speak on 10, 11, and 12, and Barry said, Jess, he said, you're constantly telling me about when I get on the telephone too long with some woman and get, uh, like he deals with this Lebanese rug dealer and his wife, and the wife is the woman who it gives him a lot of pain, 
what's the problem? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. He wants to pass the bag around. Let it go! Hey, get the 20s in there. Here's my 20. Okay, here comes the bag from the back. We got a new order as of today in Sexaholics Anonymous. I got to reach deeper into the fishing money to get my 20s out. And the whiskey money. You know, when you go to a bar or the, or the liquor store, all you see is 20s. When you go to church, all you see is ones and change. <laughs> well, buddy, we ain't in church anymore. We ain't the churchy kind of people. We're deeply spiritual. I'll tell you what, buddies. Here we go. Okay, there's a hundred. I can go fishing with a can of worms dug up by the backyard, so that's fine. Oh, okay, there you go. Hey, we got the spirit moving here. Hey, hey, I'm an old Baptist preacher. Huh? Oh, they couldn't, they didn't hear what he said. He said anybody who goes into counseling for an hour pays 40, 50 bucks an hour. Or a hundred. Yeah, cheap counselors. <laughs> now, have I made it clear so that you won't forget it? Okay. <laughs> Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what's so beautiful here is we're doing this for you and me. I was telling a couple of the preachers in this bunch, we got a bunch of preachers with us, them, them lying hypocrites that stood up there. Pre preaching God and shacking up with the choir boy. I was telling some about this, and, and they thought, well, gosh, you don't want to do this in a regular meeting. This is for the business meeting. And I says, the hell it is. Nobody pays any attention to business meetings, and no one in their right mind goes. <laughs> I said, this is a matter for the general meeting because it's got, they said, well, that's financial. I said, the hell it is. Having had a spiritual experience as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and practice these principles in all our affairs. Okay, like I say, what kind of carrying the message is it when we give the person whose job it is to give us the things we need to carry the message and then tie their hands behind their back and say, here's five cents, don't waste it, don't spend it all in one place. When I was a sexaholic, I bought my clothes at the finest men's store in Minneapolis and my wife shopped at Penny's. That's how a sexaholic lives. They come first and everybody else comes last. Okay. 
A sexaholic in recovery is the exact opposite way. Everybody else come first, and they come last. And you say, oh my God, how can I handle my feelings? My feelings of deprivation and abandonment and being alone. Bull crap. People forget that we are in the most powerful program in the world, which is a program of action. We take the actions and the feelings follow. We act our way to right thinking. We act our way to right feeling. We do not feel and think our way to right action. And if you want to have some proof of that, you listen to good 12-step people and how they look and all the smile wrinkles. Then you go and look at people who are into their feelings and what their faces look like. They are full of anger, resentment, bitter, enviness, and jealousy. That map of the feelings is written all over their face. And they're people that you have a hell of a time standing being around. I know what the research behind that is like. It is non-existent. But we, our ego, our self-centered ego, loves the idea that I must express my feelings. I must not repress them. They're so precious. Where do our feelings come from? Resentment comes from us not having had our way and remembering it still. Anger comes from us not getting our way right now. Fear comes from us not getting our way in the future and the fear that we won't. Every one of those damn feelings are phony feelings coming out of the ego that we're supposed to get rid of. But we can't get rid of it, and no psychiatrist I've ever seen ever could. Carl Jung started this program when he told Roland in Switzerland in about 1933, Roland, you're a hopeless alcoholic and there's no help for you. Psychiatry cannot help you. Your only chance is a, a spiritual recovery. You're... Your only chance is a spiritual recovery and having a spiritual conversion. So, yeah, <laughs> you damn right. I want two tough guys. <laughs> Okay, Carl Jung says, I, my therapy will not work for you because you're a hopeless addict and the only thing that can save you is a spiritual experience. We happen to be in the class of people, sexaholics and alcoholics and other people of our type cannot have benefit from anything but a spiritual awakening. How are we going to have a spiritual awakening? We're going to have a spiritual awakening by taking the actions of love by walking these steps. I've got a beautiful film on Mother Teresa at home. And what's so telling about the film is her life as a teaching sister in the Sisters of Calcutta, one of her fellow nuns said, my God, she was just like us, meaning a finger slapping, losing her temper kind of nun, the kind that some of us have known. Her bishop, when the pre her priest confessor went to ask for permission for her to break away from the teaching order and start an order to work with the poorest of the poor and to start a new order, said, 
My God, the woman couldn't even keep the candles lit at our last retreat. So she was a flake and a space cadet like you and me. Okay. What happened to Mother Teresa? She was on the train to Darjeeling and she saw a new mission. Did she have uh, the spiritual experience that radically changed her there? No. She doesn't say it that way. I think what changed her experience was taking the actions of love. Going out and picking up the poorest of the poor. Dying Hindu men and women off the streets. Bringing them home. Seeing Christ in each one of them. And yet giving them the religious rights of their appropriate religion, whether they were Muslim, Hindu, or a Sikh. She gave them their appropriate religious rights. But she picked up the poorest of the poor, and she took the actions of love, and I'm sure we forgot about her just like we forgot about S.A. Central Office. And there were times when she sat alone for a couple of days without any food. But she kept on picking up the poorest of the poor. And there were times when she felt completely forsaken. We know that from her statements. She felt the most forsaken of all people. But she kept on picking up the poorest of the poor. Okay, that is our job, is to carry the message. And that's why this previous thing I said to you is so vital. Everything we give away is us doing, taking the actions of love. And us moving us one each little thing we do is a spiritual awakening. What the hell do you call it when when us, the lowest perverts in, of the world, are donating precious money for perversion and donating it to a worthy thing? That is a if that ain't a spiritual awakening, buddy, please tell me what is. Okay? And we do that over and over again and gradually we're healed. And you think these things don't add up? Let me tell you a story. One part of my recovery program is that I would make lifetime amends to my wife and my children and the rest of my family. So that my rule was that whenever humanly possible, I would say yes to my wife no matter what it was. And she'd say, I need this, okay, and I want that, I need that. What do you think about me buying this dress? Beautiful, get it. Uh, she's never shown me a piece of clothing yet that she wanted to buy that I didn't say, hey, it would be wonderful, honey, why don't you get it? And one day she was telling me, Jess, you see that I need a shelf in my closet. But she said, please don't run and do it right now. <laughs> not, not very many husbands have heard words like that. But I had been so quick to make amends that that had been her response. And that was a very, very precious words to hear. Uh, let me tell you about bath towels. We have two lavatories in our bathroom that my wife and I uh, use. And uh, the first lavatory as you come in the door is the one that she and I primarily use. And we have our uh, toothbrushes and, uh, and razors and stuff there. And it's the closest. And there's the second lavatory and then the, the toilet and the shower. And right behind the first lavatory here is a towel bar. And um, my towel stood right there closest. That was my towel, and her towel was second in line. That's the way it's supposed to be, right? Of course. <laughs> You're a sexaholic. It's me first, and everybody else last. 
That's why we're such tough people to be around. <laughs> we're like being trampled on by a bunch of elephants is how the people around us feel. <laughs> ah, so the towels are switched around now. Now my wife's towel is first and mine second. Okay, when you get to the bathroom and step out of the bathtub, my towel, my big bath towel is first. And her big bath towel is second, furthest away from the bathtub. Okay, now her bath towel is first and mine is second. And I just changed them. I didn't say anything to her about it. Never have, I still haven't ever said anything about it. It just did it. Okay, you say, well, that's just a little bitty thing. The answer is the hell it isn't. It's a, it's a huge thing because it can only happen because of me being aware of what a jerk I am and where I need to go with God's grace and God's help. So what I basically follow in life are two different expressions come from Chuck C. I help God's children do the things they want to do. Now look what I just did here this morning. I helped you guys do what you wanted to do. God, it's a wonder you aren't rushing up here to kiss me. <laughs> so I'm helping God's children do what they want to do, not what I think they should do. And boy, is there ever a fine line in that North Hollywood situation. I talked to Jonathan about it. I said, Jonathan, I, I love these ideas that you guys have interjected into AA or SA. But I said, there's one idea you've, you've got that, that I th- it's almost impossible for me to do. Because I said, if I was in my meeting confronting people, I said, God, I'd be uh, a bull in a china shop. I'd be out of control about ten seconds later. And he said, Jess, I know what you mean. And he said, what we do is we have we have our protections against that. We have other guys checking on us, and then we check ourselves out. And we also know with the feeding inside our guts that we're out of line, and we're across the line of a loving confronting as opposed to uh, an egotistical self-serving confronting. So that uh, that was a beautiful thing. But you see... The point is, I help God's children do what they want to do, and by and large, I have to leave it up to them to decide that they want to do it. Old Vince used to say, I reach out my hand in love and friendliness to try to awaken some poor soul. And that's what I do, is I reach out my hand in love and friendliness to try to awaken some poor soul. But if they don't want it, that's beautiful. That's got nothing to do with me. I have done all that I needed to do. I, and it is very sick of me to push on that. I'm a very sick Al-Anon. And Al-Anon is the most awful addiction there is in the world. I sat as an Al-Anon alongside alcoholics meeting rooms. And I heard the alcoholics in there laughing and having a ball. And us Al-Anons were sitting there with the gloomiest faces in the world. There wasn't a smile in a carload of us. And finally, when I came in to SA, I th- and, I, and I thought, well, what the hell are you guys laughing about? You're the people that did this to us. <laughs> and, of course, they didn't. Well, then when I finally came in this program, I said to my wife, ha ha, now I'm the ick and you're the anon. Now deal with it. <laughs> I'm an imp. Okay. Now, I'm speaking this way. Because Harvey told me to. 
Some of you thought I was Harvey's sponsor. But after you're a guy's sponsor for a while, it tends to get kind of a little mixed up of who's sponsoring who. <laughs> I'm talking about to Jonathan about that, and that's one part I left out in that sponsorship talk. And when I come up to, I'm going to write that up uh, for uh, SA Magazine uh, so it can go down because it's, to me, the most powerful thing I've ever, it's the most powerful meeting I've ever been at in SA. The only thing more powerful is when we sit in our local group and hear a first step from somebody. But uh, where'd I go? I'm lo- where was I going? Oh, okay. I uh, I forgot about the co-sponsorship thing, and that is when Jordan got to be, and he was the guy that was with me here yesterday until noon, and we love each other so deeply, it's just so overwhelming. And here I was looking for these damn relationships. Shit, that's like drinking strychnine, those relationships as after, compared to that love with Jordan, which is like drinking honey or drinking milk. or It's the most beautiful thing in the world and just odd that I may have a part of such a thing. So when Jordan was about uh, four years, he's, uh, I sponsored him for five years now. Well, in fact, uh, speaking about, you help me keep track here, Barry. So when I, when I, <laughs> uh Speaking about that, the reason Jordan is in the fellowship is because he walked into my wife's bookstore out in Bozeman, and he was wandering around asking about some books, and my wife said, uh, uh, are you a sexaholic? (laughs) And he said, yes. She said, there's a meeting tonight. And so that saved his life. He went from a flea bag, scumbag, kind of hippie type, uh, would-be, uh, a playwriter to he's writing plays uh, Hollywood plays now and but more important he has uh, he has a life his wife just recently came into a 12 step program six months ago and she said to him the other day she said Jordan we were living here as adversaries in this house and now we are partners on the same team about that, and to me, there ain't nothing, there ain't nothing finer than what that is and what it says. Uh, so uh, about four, about a year ago, I said to Jordan, I said, Jordan, uh, my time of of formal direct sponsorship of you is over, and we are now peers, seeing eye to eye. And it, it isn't that I don't say some things to Jordan that I see once in a while, but like yesterday, I saw, saw something. I said, Jordan, I wonder if, you know, what you think about this and, you know, think about it. And he says, I have been thinking about it, Jess, and I think I want to do it. And I said, well, great, you know. Um, and uh, when he needs to say something to me, and then like Harvey needs something to say something to me, he'll say, damn it, Jess, quit reading them damn speeches off your thing. It's hurting you too much. And so I said, okay, Harvey, I'll do it. That's where sponsorship goes. And that's, And again, you don't hear much about that in the sponsorship manuals. And that's why I think what happens when people start writing about sponsorship, I read all that stuff and I'm looking for direction. I couldn't find what is on that tape that was made yesterday morning. People get so carried away with the spiritual nature of things that they, they just get paralyzed. And I know that as a writer, what, how that can happen. And they just write drivel. They write all the junk that you, you know, already know and, and, and really is wrong. So get that tape on sponsorship yesterday morning. That was the great. And then good old 
Buddy Kurt there came up with the the most powerful and beautiful question of all at the end of Roy, which is when your sponsee starts making a God out of you, then how in the hell do you handle that? And Roy gave the most powerful answer to that. So that is real gold. When I used to walk in my corral, my horses would go the other way. I had five horses. Now when I walk in my corral, my horses come up to me. Because I don't flare up at them anymore. I got good things for them. And when I ask my horse to stop, I don't pull in the reins to make him stop. When I ask, when I want my horse to stop, as one foot is settling down, I give him a light, feather light touch on the reins, inviting him to stop on the next foot. And then that prepares his body to stop and then as he puts his next foot down, I give just a little more feather light touch, like you're holding a string on a hummingbird, and he stops on that next foot. My horse really appreciates that for some reason or other. Instead of, <clears throat> let's stop, <laughs> right in mid-stride. <laughs> and many spouses of sexaholics have had that experience. <laughs> so, unfortunately, uh, my 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 five children uh, have not been quite as quick to get the message as my horses have. But that's okay. Uh, we got a long lifetime. And they at least are not running when I come near them anymore. There's a story on uh, new pair of glasses. I've listened to that set of tapes, you know, 20 to 30 times that a new pair of glasses is based on. I don't care for the new new pair of glasses as a book. I've got a couple copies of it around, but because I I, I want to hear Chuck's words as he tells it. And there's something on there that it took me years to see, and it's so powerful. Because you see, uh, Chuck tells the stories about his service to AA. And as you know, Chuck spoke almost every night here in the valley or and then almost every weekend someplace around the United States. But there's a story on there in between the lines that you, that you just got to figure out for yourself, and it's so powerful. In fact, on the point of service, Chuck also tells the story of how when uh, they thought they were going to retire, and so they bought that home down in Laguna and uh, then didn't retire. So then Elsa was stranded down in Laguna without being nearby Hollywood where the plant was to go to meetings with Chuck. And so she ended up alone a lot. So uh, she had Chuck stay home and turn these AA things down. And finally, uh, about a year of that or six months of it, he just couldn't stand anymore. And so Thanksgiving dinner, he told the family, hey, when AA, when that phone rings, I'm going. Okay, so you hear those stories and you think, God, you know, where's the family? Okay, I'll tell you where the family is. There's a story on there where a guy calls Chuck and he says, Chuck, I got a revolver laying in my lap and I'm going to kill myself. And Chuck says, well, you caught me on a bad day. He says, this is Friday and I'm tied up tonight and tomorrow night and Sunday night. But I can see you Monday at 7 o'clock if you can wait. And the guy says, Okay. <laughs> so the guy came over Monday night at 7 o'clock and Chuck took him through the steps until 2 o'clock the next morning and sent him on his way. 
But what doesn't this, that tape tell you? And this is the story about the fa- our families. Um, Chuck says, I can't see you tonight. Okay, uh, this was in the afternoon when he called Chuck. He's at work. He didn't take off work. He didn't say, well, I was supposed to go home for supper tonight, but I won't go home for supper. Chuck went home for supper. And then at 7 or 7.30 or 8 o'clock, he he spoke at an AA meeting someplace. But he was home for supper Friday night with Elsa, I'm sure. What's he doing Saturday? Well, Saturday morning, uh, I know from other tapes that Chuck uh, did a lot of lawn bowling at at Bel Air Country Club. So I suspect he was lawn bowling with his friends that morning and probably meeting Elsa there and and the social time at noon and and then they, maybe they spent the afternoon doing you know playing gin rummy or whatever the hell and then uh, had dinner with the family maybe or whatever and seven seven thirty Chuck went to a AA meeting and spoke because he was busy Saturday night Sunday is you know God knows what but probably some kind of family day. And they spend their time together as a family, and and then Sunday night Chuck goes at 7:30 to an AA meeting, and then Monday gets up and goes to work because he's got a living to make, and does his work, and comes home for dinner with Elsa, and they have their dinner, and then he goes to an AA meeting. He didn't talk about that part, but that was there. Okay, so the point is. As Vince Lombardi said it so beautifully, it is my God, my family, and the Green Bay Packers. Okay, now my meeting life is directly and intimately involved with God. I'm a guy who is looking at you with one less eye than I had last time. When I I lost the sight of one eye this spring. I found that uh, my heart is beating smoothly and well, but only half effectiveness, so that it pumps only half the blood out that it should. So it pumps 35% of the blood out of there instead of 70. And the uh, vasodilator, a small dosage of it, makes me feel really great during the day. I've got a tremendous amount of energy during the day. But in the evening when I lay down, the fluid that settles in my legs has to be pumped throughout my body. It settles in my lungs. And I was I was almost drowning at times with that fluid in my lungs. And I'd wake up with this choking feeling of not being able to get air. And I was like a, a man literally drowning. In fact, when you die of congestive heart failure, you're liter- you really are dying in your own fluid. So I asked the doctor, I said, I need some help there. But fortunately, my daughter-in-law is a, a respiratory therapist. And she's been telling me for two, three, about two years, Dad, you need oxygen. So instead of increasing my dosage uh, from two and a half milligrams morning and evening, as a, that's five, as a total, uh, you know, as a max of 50 is about how high they go, but I want to stay just as low as I can on any kind of drug. I said to the doctor, why don't you give me oxygen at night and let's try that. So he got me oxygen. And so I sleep at night with an oxygen concentrator by my bed with you know, the little thing that you have when you're hospital with the little two probes in your nose. And so I, out here, obviously, I don't have an oxygen concentrator with me, but it, because it's 5,000 feet in Bozeman and zero feet here, why um, I do per, I do okay. My wife is very concerned about me, and I said, "Okay, honey, I'm doing okay." But I said, uh, "I've got uh, if I start not doing okay, I can uh, carry a portable oxygen concentrator with me in a suitcase." 
Yeah. And uh, I traveled just on SA business, nothing else. And uh, but even that is a big thing to ask of a wife when she's got this husband who's had two heart attacks or two heart surgeries and three pacemakers and two cancer surgeries, both of them successful and all this other stuff. She kind of thinks, you know, any good wind might blow me over and kill me. (laughs) But I have to ask that of her because this is part of the God part of my program. But I mentioned the Chuck part of my program, or the Chuck's family life, to show how he kept a balance there. Now, there was one call he made when a guy named Jimmy, I think it's the guy that started Gamblers Anonymous, when Jimmy called during the day and needed Chuck, uh, Chuck went to Jimmy during the day. But he didn't go to the stranger saying, I'm going to blow my brains out during the day, because he didn't want to rob from his family. So in business, I, there is, you know, people think, well, there's life and work and then there's business. There isn't a division between the two. Everything is the same. All day long, every day of the year, I am helping God's children do what they want to do. Now, some of the things that I do have financial price tags to, and I must keep that separate from my sponsorship work. Like I'm sponsoring a guy, um, an opera singer, and I'm coaching him assiduously on making up for his addictive time and learning a bunch of roles in a hurry to make a, up for the fact that he's sat around like a big, fat, sexaholic slob and wasted some years. Okay, that's a, a real value to him, but but it isn't that isn't financial. Okay, but there are some work that I do with people that there's money attached to it, and... I have to be sure that I am not that person's, and and automatically, because of the kind of work I do, I am doing what sounds like sponsorship, but I cannot be that person's sponsor and have money involved. So I work with somebody in AA, or in SA, I work with people outside SA, but the people with in SA that I work with, there was just one of those before, and there might be another uh, few of those, they must have their own sponsorship outside of SA and uh, so that there's never a line where sponsorship and money, in the sense of bottom line sponsorship and money are involved. But my job is to help God's children do what they want to do. So I was making a big pitch to one of my clients, which involved uh, 3% of his uh, gross of his business over the years of gain over the base. He got a business, so he... He's got a million dollars. It's an insurance agent. He's got a million dollars. It's a first-year premium. And uh, so as he goes to uh, $2 million, then I would get um, uh, uh, $50,000 of that uh, $2 million or that extra million dollars. And I was explaining why this might make sense to him. And he said, well, you know, it sounds pretty good to me, but I need to think about it. I said, well, I'll tell you one secret. I said, you really don't need to pay me anything because I said I'd do this work for nothing. And now that's not what you're supposed to say when you're negotiating with somebody. But the answer is the hell it isn't. It is. So that uh, we do what we have to do. Now, uh, I look nice. 
I look splendid, in fact. <laughs> but there's a very important thing here. I have two suits and one sport coat. So I look nice, but I don't waste a dime. And I know what wasting money on clothes means. I know what wasting money on anything means. Because what I'm doing is I'm building wealth for my wife, for my children, for my grandchildren. And I'm living on whatever of that I have to have to live on, but hopefully none of it. So that wealth is available for what needs to be done. Five years ago, my wife said, Justice, I've always wanted uh, to have a Bodhi tree type bookstore, a spiritual bookstore in Bozeman. I said, okay, honey, let's do it. Okay, it's taken about $200,000 to have that bookstore for five years. And she finally said, hey, I, we can't afford this anymore. And I said, right. And so she closed the doors here January 3rd. A very, very difficult thing for her. In the process, she also educated my learning disabled son who was working with her and made him employable. And she's the one that told Jordan, hey, you're a sex addict. So she saved Jordan's life and was an important thing in a whole bunch of other people's lives. She couldn't believe why God would terminate this thing that was so valuable, but I don't either. But I know God is infinitely good and infinitely kind, and there's something better waiting for us. Meanwhile, she's unemployed and has full time to find my defects of character. <laughs> and that's like shooting fish in a barrel. It's so easy. So I have to handle that, uh, and I, a lot of times I'm not grateful. A lot of times I'm not grateful. Sometimes I have to go out in the back room of my workshop and do up to three hours of occupational therapy in that bookshop, in that back room, trying to get grateful. But I never once justify any of my whining and babyishness, just like if any of you tried to justify some of your whining about this money thing. I've got experience dealing with that, buddy, I'll tell you. I got good at that because I de dealt with the greatest whiner of all, this whiner. I know whiners up one side and down the other. And that's why I'm so much of a value to my clients, because I've made every mistake that can be made maybe ten times, or a hundred times, or a thousand times in a case of our addiction. So, and in 45 years, you got a chance to make one hell of a lot of mistakes. And so I've just learned a lot of good things that they don't need to make all those mistakes if they're willing to listen, and, and most of them very are, very much are. Okay, uh, I'll say this, the, the last part of this is about the feelings thing. There are true feelings, like the death of somebody close to you. What do you do with them? There's a beautiful piece of research, and that is that if you repress anger, it turns into cholesterol and, uh, and uh, hurts your heart arteries and goes to your brain and makes your brain mushy. If you express anger, it increases your cholesterol, goes to your heart arteries and your brain arteries and makes your brain mushy. Okay, what the hell do you do with feelings? And the answer is simple. Each time you have a feeling, you've got somewhere from 10 seconds to a minute to have that feeling, and then you move on to chopping wood or carrying water. 
and the whole current wisdom today, and that wisdom is not wisdom, it is just a bunch of crap, which is psychology distorted by its users in the service of their own ego to justify whining and laying and luxuriating in their feelings. And those people are a beautiful, the most beautiful demonstration that I can offer to you that that doesn't work worth a damn. And then you listen, as I have, to the people in, a, in AA 25 years sober roundtable in New Jersey I've got from a conference out there. And you hear these people go around the circle with their 25 years of sobriety and their voices are clear like bells. And there isn't anything but joy in them. Okay, what did they do with all that anger? At my first AA conference with Vince in Miles City in 1967, the mayor came to Miles Saturday morning and said, because you guys are and men and women are in these rooms, we have dismissed half of our police force. And I looked at these AAs where any one of them could have occupied the half of police force all by himself. And I thought, where in the hell has this anger gone? And I know now where it went. It went because there was zero time and attention paid to the anger. They went directly to service. And they went directly to giving their five dollars each time. <laughs> Such a precious service. So what I have found and I'm, gonna write, I'm writing about this in a new book called I Still Ain't Much Baby and I'm Still All I Got. I'm, I'm seeing what a blind alley all that feeling stuff is. And so it's like our feelings are in a bucket. We got all this old resentment and bitterness and anger and envy and jealousy and we're angry at our fathers and our mothers. Nobody did for us what we needed to do. And hell, all our father needed to do is give us life. All our mother needed to do is give us life. And then we're born separate and alone and full of delusions, as the Buddhists say. And we spend our life moving towards God, towards the Spirit. So what, what help do we need? None. All of this stuff that happened to us is grist for the mill. It, it's a, a beautiful thing. So we use all of this stuff to move forward, to move out in God's service, practicing these principles in all our affairs. I do God's work, and He does mine. And, and, and I'm rewarded beyond belief. And like Chuck he went. He was had riches beyond belief, and most of the stuff that he did, he gave away. But some once in a while, somebody paid him something, and, and he hung on to it. So that what I'm seeing as I emptied this bucket, it's like my feelings are in a bucket, and I emptied out all this old bucket. And I've been doing this work for the last two, three years as I've seen this stuff. I'm just about through here. The last two, three years as I've been doing this stuff. I've emptied this bucket of feelings out, and about two months ago, I had a new great-granddaughter, or new granddaughter, and she's the, the eighth of my grandchildren. And my, my son called and said, Dad, he said, we got a baby, a baby girl. And I said, wonderful, Joe, and that's great, and I'll be down to the hospital to see her. And I just hung up the phone, and I thought, my God, there's a new life on this earth, and she's in our family. And I just felt like you'd poured hot water into my chest. Just, oh, God, this, the feeling just pervaded my whole body. And all day long, I just, I would be doing my work and I'd come back, my God, there's a new life here. What that means, 
and I picked up my grandson where we've, we're taking, we've got custody of our, one of our grandsons and picked him up and took him there to, told him, Robert, we got a new life in our family. And, and, and I held the baby and it was just unbelievable. And they had been told it was a boy, the sonograms and stuff. So they didn't have a girl's name. So an old and nameless girl baby, <laughs> nameless lair girl baby. And that was my eighth. I thought, and I, so what did I, you know, why didn't I feel this with my five children and my seven previous grandchildren and my two great-grandchildren? I think it's got something to do with that feeling bucket was so full of old crap that it didn't have room for the new feeling. And I've had those kinds of feelings in other situations since then. So I think I'm acquiring the capacity to feel deeply. And also those negative feelings are the holes that my energy leaks out. And as I patch up those holes, I hold my high energy that I have in the morning all the way through to night. So I lay down in the evening with my high energy, just physically tired. I just close my eyes and go to sleep. So I'm in va- I, I am a different person than I have ever been before, and I am stronger than I have ever been before. And, you know, somebody hearing this, this idiot lays down beside an oxygen machine. He's 90 days stronger than ever before. Haul him away to the lunatic asylum. No. It not, uh, it's not a, a paradox. I mean, I got a pacemaker that's been here for 17 years, three of them. And, and I'll have pacemaker, I'll be pace, have a pacemaker the rest of my life. But they're beautiful things if I don't leak the energy out this feelings and, and cave into fear and anger and resentment. So I found an increasingly powerful way of life. And so now I'm of use to people of all ages, not just a, a cruddy old, crabby old man who can only stay, uh, uh, only crabby old, other old, crabby old men can bear him. Uh, and actually, the movie Crabby Old Men, they, those guys weren't very crabby. They pretended to be, but there was a hell of a lot of life in those guys. Okay, so that. This is where I'm going, and this is the most unbelievable land, and you people carried me there, and I want us to have the, be able to reach out our hand and our literature and our cheap essay books to everybody in the world so they can join you and me in this thing. We have built the cadre. It's like the army in 1935, the 250,000 men, uh, colonels, were top sergeants. Previously, colonels were devoted to top sergeants because there was no room for them. But then when we needed 10 million men, we had the cadre. Before, when that first Dear Abby letter came in, imagine what Roy felt when this Dear Abby letter appeared unbeknownst to him. And here's this flood of inquiries and there's nobody out there to help. And when the second one came in, it was still just as bad. There were only just a handful of towns that had people. But the man who carried the message to me came from that first Dear Abby letter, and that letter was answered because Roy came up with somewheres upwards of $100,000 of his own money. And we're repaying him by putting a dollar in the damn plate if we remember to bring the dollar. So this is, this is the thing, this is the most beautiful way of life. We've got it for everybody that wants it, and we now have the cadre. So that now, if we have a dear Abby letter accidentally appears, <laughs> despite Roy's protest, uh, we, he, he's got somebody to send the damn inquiries to. And we got a central office that can send the inquiries to. 
and we've got the people on the mating list, like the intergroup list, that the people can come to. So we've been given life, and we now need to spend the rest of our lives carrying that life to others. My wife recently said, made a presentation to get custody of our our son, and at the end of the presentation, the ex-wife said, or the ex-wife's boyfriend said, because my wife had made the presentation, she, he said to me, Jess, well, fine, we've heard from Jackie, but how do you feel? I said, we're one. And I heard my wife, I said, when Jackie talks, you're hearing me. And when she, I talk, you're hearing her. Half hour later, I heard her say that to my other son. I made the presentation, she said, and the guy, the therapist's boyfriend said, you know, how do you feel, Jess? And Dad said, we're one. Okay, those are the most beautiful words a sexaholic can ever hear. That was what my wife and I agreed to on that altar 46 and a half years ago. And thanks to you and this program and Roy, that's happened. Thank you much. On the condition that I have a question and answer thing and I not be just solidly screaming at you guys. Now, I think that was very perceptive of your program committee to protect you <laughs> that way. Yeah, Dale. I, I, I'll, I'll, pre, I'll rephrase the question, Dale, so you go ahead. Yeah, Dale says we're supposed to be doing this for fun and for free. Shouldn't we change that and give the books away? We have got ten Alcoholics Anonymous books in our house that were given my wife over a period of 1969 to 1978 by Betsy in Bozeman, who was down to her last dime. But she gave books away that cost about three bucks. Uh, and so when we do what we're supposed to do, our book can have a, a three, four dollar price tag, and then we can do what Dale says, which is give that book away instead of asking the newcomer to buy the thing. He doesn't, what the hell? Why should he buy something like that? He doesn't know that. Yeah. Okay, Tim is saying we should sell the books for eleven dollar books for five dollars to newcomers, and the meeting subsidize it. Yeah. Yeah, Jeff. Yes, she did. Yeah. Yeah, Betsy paid for those books, and uh, but it's easier for us to pay for them when they're uh, $5 instead of $10, but they can't be $5 instead of $10 until our, we are self-supporting through our own contributions. I think those are words we've said a few times. Come on, fakes and flannel mouths, including me. Yeah. Yeah, Dave. Yeah, Dave. We aren't a non-profit organization, but we're a bunch of fakes 
and we need that money, and then we're using it up someplace else so we don't look like we're a profit-making organization. But we're making a gross, awful profit on those books. Uh, Doreen just handed me a beautiful little slip here. Uh, yesterday, we took in $862.82. Who the hell gave that two cents? <laughs> Let me find him. Today, we gave $2,557 and no cents. Ah! <laughs> Yeah, Barry. Help us with our businesses, if you will. You said that every day we're to go out and help God's children. Right. Help us see how our defects sometimes get in the way and we trip ourselves up. Give us some examples where we should watch out for. Okay, where do you watch out when you go out and help God's children? The only thing we're fighting are a few little things like greed and fear. (laughs) We get greedy and want all the money in the world right now instead of gradual. Like, I'm going to lose 20 pounds. In 20 years. And I'm, not, I'm never getting on a scale again. And my uh, pants tell me real well just where I'm at. So the point is, is gradualness. Gradualness. And we always are just praying to God all day long. Uh, on the 10th step, we continue to take personal inventory. We're, when we're wrong, promptly admit it. And we make a 10 step in the evening. Why in the hell Wait. We hell, I got I make about uh, ten mistakes a day, five, ten, twenty in a good day. So I, you know, I find it's best to do it right then. Now somebody said, "Yeah, Jess, but we're only human." I said, "Okay, you know, if if you don't pick them up along the way, do your tenth in the evening and grab everyone you can. But boy, you're going to miss a bunch of them that way." So it's you, you got to watch that fear and you got to watch that greed because because uh, the way we paraphrase the first three steps is I can't God can so let him I submit to you that we don't have any sense really of a God who can in a sense a God who provides us nothing but overwhelming abundance and has nothing but overwhelming good for us so if God can and we understand that God can in that way, well, then we are really ready to turn over that our, our, our life to that kind of a God. I wouldn't turn my life over for ten seconds to the kind of God that most of you have. You think you got a good God, but He doesn't work in your daily life and He doesn't have your best interests in heart and He's going to beat the hell out of you at any kind of mistake you make. I don't want a God like that around. So why should I let Him if the God who can, as I conceive of it, is so limited and so punitive and so harsh. Okay? Any more on that, Barry? We just feel we won't be cared for. And I'm, I'm, I'm practicing this every day in my own life, in my... Uh, my financial resources got severely depleted. And so I'm sitting there uh, wanting to be a big shot and throw my money around and be a wheel. And I can't do that. I can't even think of doing it. 
And I'm saying, God, it seems to me what you're telling me is you don't handle being a big shot too well yet. So I stripped you down again so you can learn being a little shot, and then I'll gradually let you be a big shot again, maybe. (laughs) And I said, okay, God, I got the message, because I sure didn't do very well. And I tend to, like if you got it, flaunt it, you know, (laughs) uh, aspects of my life. So uh, I'm just continually, you know, turning that over. God help me. And, And I don't... I use the lust prayer of God help me. I use that for all the fears and all the worries and all these crazy ideas. God help me. God help me. Because I will not entertain one of those ideas. And the most important concept, and I just came up with this understanding a bit ago, you know, you've, I realize that when lust knocks on our door to come in, and we look up and see lust at the door, right? Guess what? There is no handle on that door on lust's side. You've gone up to doors where there's no handle on that side, right? Know the, you, know, you know the feeling? You know, you're looking at, what are they the handle? How am I going to get in here? And the answer is you can't. How do you go through a door that ain't got no handle on you see, we see lust as having a big power. And, oh, poor little baby me. I can't push him away. Below knee. The handle's on our side. We opened the door. And to me, that is vitally important that we never forget that. The handle is on our side. Yeah. Uh, who are always putting all this money out, etc. It seems to me in reading AA literature of our time, old stuff, that uh, they, they paid Bill back by uh, buying his house for him. Is there something that can be done here to repay him? Because that's only fair. Okay, what's your first name? Merlin. Merlin uh, said uh, in the, the AAs uh, paid uh, Bill back by buying his house for him. Is there something that we should do like that? And the answer to me is no. Uh, we would have a hell of a time trying to put to even give money to Roy. Uh, and, and to me, stepping in and buying him a house uh, is, is totally... Uh, Bill was a different character than Roy is a character. And uh, But to me, uh, the first step is there's got to be 100000 extra in central office before... Uh, and I think if Roy saw that our donations were greater than our income from literature sales... Uh, to the extent that we had then an extra $100,000 in central office, I think then uh, Roy might be receptive to, uh, on a good day, <laughs> approached by uh, somebody like Kurt uh, to, to doing this. You know? But but we've got to do our work first, Merlin, before anything like that is possible. And it may be, that 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 never can be remedied. I I did, I gave offense to my wife in ways that I will never in my lifetime be able to make amends to for, and I just have to accept that. Okay, Roy has given us things that very possibly never in our lifetime will we be able to make amends to him for, and we have to accept that. It's nice and clean to think, okay, we give him his hundred thousand dollars back, and with you know, which is maybe with his money with interest. Uh, but not with interest, not at, if you got it well invested, it isn't. 
And so, but that's too, that's clean. And, and we always, we can't always have these nice clean deals. Some people we have offended and hurt so deeply. Hi, Ron. Jesse had talked about how um, taking actions to alleviate some of the negative feelings, our feelings of fear and anger and those kind of things. Could you talk about some of the actions? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. that's a real good point, Ron, and that's uh, that's had a whole chapter in my new book, which is taking the actions of love. And what Jonathan did at that twelfth uh, at that sponsorship thing was just in a beautiful example of what I'm talking about. Is here he was filling our water glasses, and it uh, like I tell people they call me from they call me from some strange town and and uh, they're frightened and don't know what to do. I say go out in the street and uh, of New York or St. Louis and pick up newspaper and put it in the trash can. I do that in my post office uh, and I have I I don't like to say talk about these things because it's like I'm getting credit for them and if you get credit for them it robs them of their merit. Okay? But like I'll go in the post office and the counter's messy and I'll pull the stuff off. I walk in the the drugstore and I look for an aisle because the aisles are narrower than that drugstore that I go into and I look for an aisle there's nobody standing and I go down that aisle to get my paper. Uh so that uh, I guess the biggest action is specifically that I take, you know, like when there is a fear attack, I, I have to, I, the prayer is the primary thing that I do. But when uh, my wife is telling me about my defects of character and I, and I want to get angry and I want to justify and all this other stuff, then I need heavy duty, heaviest duty occupational therapy I can find. I go out in the workshop and find the most interesting project I've got that it will best guaranteed to take me off myself. And I work on it and work on it, and my mind goes back, but but but, and my mind goes quit it, and and so I'll do all kinds of things. But to me, it it is more of an indirect situation, Ron. Uh, and and with Jonathan's example is such a beautiful example. I need to go in the service mode, and that's what Chuck says. He says he wants us to get lost in the good half of the this program, which is giving it away to others. So to me, my central thought all day long and guiding principle is my need is to help God's children. I do God's work and God does mine. Now, there's plenty of times I'm scared that God isn't going to pay attention to what I need to do, but that's uh, I, I have a certain weak fallibility. Yeah, we've got time for one or two more questions and then we end. Yeah. Okay, the the new pair of glasses is in any 12-step bookstore. The tapes that it came from, I uh, forget the name of the Delray Retreat or something like, huh? Palo Alto Retreat. And they're usually available. I know Buddy, I got this set from Buddy Ross, AA Tape Library, but a, most of the, a number of the tape libraries have them. I think Glenn's, okay, Glenn's got them, so uh, you can get them from him. And those... Those are the most, pre- they tell, they tell what this program is about. And they're my Bible of this program. Yeah. My name is Robert. I'm a sexaholic. You spoke earlier about um, uh, acknowledging the feelings. 
Excuse me, I talked about what? You talked about your eighth grandchild. Yes. And you said that you experienced new feelings and you think that some of that had to do with putting some of the fear and anger and resentment away. Can you also talk about steps that you took to, to begin to feel again? Because I know for me as a sexaholic, I'm often very numb. Yeah. And I want to know what steps you took. Okay. Uh, the steps I took, uh, the first step I took was being sexual having sexual sobriety, uh, never entertaining lust. Uh, I was handed this most beautiful gift of all in this program. This will be the last question. I was handed the most beautiful gift of all when I heard about lust in the telephone. I have never since entertained lust. And many people have a great trouble uh, believing that, especially from <laughs> perhaps from someone like me. But uh, I was given a gift, like a million dollars, and... So it was practicing sexual sobriety. That's uh, the foundation of everything I'm talking about here. Without us, uh, it's like in the big book, it says, if we are painstaking about our development before we are halfway through, and, and I, before I'm halfway through, I'm receiving all of these things. So maybe it's way before we're halfway through we'll experience it. But we got to be painstaking about our development. So to me, the most fundamental thing in all of this is a meticulous working of my program in every area of my life, every moment of every day. I heard somebody talk the other day about, well, when they have lust for more than two or three days, it really bothers them. And I, oh, God. Somebody, you know, I get angry at people who practice the three-second lust rule. And this guy was having a three-day lust rule. And uh, so, huh? Yeah. <laughs> So uh, that to me is the core is and and the most helpful thing that was said to me was when Pat Carnes came to the Phoenix conference, the second conference, and said it's in three to five years of sexual sobriety. We go through early adolescence and in seven to ten years of sexual sobriety, we go through early adulthood. Okay, what the hell do we do in the first three years of sexual recovery? And the answer is we get ready to go through early adulthood. From the time we were five years old, anytime there was pain, we ran into masturbation and another kind of sexual fantasy. We never learned anything. We are the biggest babies in the world. You take a bunch of alcoholics and clean them up for two or three years and you got something. Take a bunch of sexaholics and clean us up for two or three years and you ain't got nothing. <laughs> so with ten years of sexual sobriety, I'm getting ready to learn something. Uh, you have been... God, I wish you could have the fun that I've had from here, this position, for the time I've been with you. It has been just, it has been the damnedest ball and the damnedest picnic. <laughs> and I love you so, all of you. And, you know, here you gave me my life, and then let you, you let me have the fun. And uh, I love you for it, and uh, if there's any way I can help any of you at any time, why... Please feel free to call on me, and thank you very much. like to thank you for listening to this episode of the daily reprieve the best source for experience strength and hope for sa members 
please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve. Thank you.